Hello and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Sheff, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today's topic is hydrogen energy in Europe, and I am thrilled to be joined by my guest, Marcus Lemp. Marcus is my counterpart, Director of Public Affairs for Danfoss in Central Europe, which includes Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're focused on at Danfoss in Central Europe. Good morning, John. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here today. Central Europe is where I'm based, in Berlin, in Germany. And meanwhile, I'm also responsible for EMEA, public affairs, so Europe. And in general, in public affairs, we are the eyes and the ears of Danfoss. We check the regulatory framework, and our first focus actually is on energy. But another important focus area are buildings and industry, but they are connected to energy too. And uh, I have a second head in Danfoss, and my second head is energy economics. That's the science on energy markets, where, for example, uh, do energy markets move to if they are affected by renewable energies? Will we have um, an all-electric world? What is sector coupling or what would sector coupling mean for energy markets and, of course, for Danfoss? And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you today, because as with a number of things, Europe is a little bit ahead of where we are in the U.S. with with refrigerants, with electrification, with renewables, and hydrogen is no different. We've been hearing a lot about hydrogen power for a long time here, and it seemed kind of like a pipe dream. But in the last few years, it's really gotten a lot of traction. It kind of feels like where we were with battery storage maybe five years ago, two years ago, where battery storage is now really entering the mainstream and picking up momentum. That's kind of how hydrogen feels right now. But in the EU, it's a little more advanced, right? Yes, you're right, John. Hydrogen is taking off as batteries did a while ago. And uh, the EU is really one of the drivers in here. The EU, so it's administrative bodies in Brussels. It's a bit organized like your federal system in the U.S., um, they, in Brussels, started a hydrogen strategy last year, and it targets hydrogen projects of six gigawatts production capacities until 2024, and another 40 gigawatts until 2030, so quite a lot. And uh, this should boost the turnover in this industry from today roughly $2 billion dollars to about $100 billion in 2030. And uh, it's not just a plan, it's already started to be implemented in the EU membership countries with own projects. For example, France is investing $7 billion in hydrogen projects in establishing production capacities, but also in rolling out filling or charging infrastructure for trucks Germany is doing the same with $9 billion. This is also driven by uh, corona uh, recovery measures. Governments spend quite a lot of money to recover from COVID. And there are linked hydrogen projects in most European countries. 
And actually one of the most interesting ones or exciting ones is a Danish one and would be great to come back to this later. Yeah, let's circle back to that a little later. But for now, let's back up. I mean, we talk about hydrogen, but all hydrogens are not created equal. You know, for the most part, at least in this country, we've seen hydrogen come out of a byproduct of natural gas production and some other not so green or sustainable energy production. But what do we talk about when we mean green hydrogen here? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's a lot of colors in hydrogen. That's important. It's, it's, it's not beige. It's not boring. And the green hydrogen, you named it already, is CO2, free hydrogen made with uh, renewable electricities. So you use water, electricity, and electrolysis. And as you use green electricity, the hydrogen resulting from this process is green hydrogen. And um, you also mentioned the hydrogen from natural gas. This is uh, gray hydrogen. And here you basically split the natural gas into carbon dioxide and hydrogen, and you release the carbon dioxide into the air. There's also the blue hydrogen, and the blue hydrogen is made exactly as the gray one from natural gas, but with the important difference that you capture the carbon dioxide and uh, store it in the floor or for usage. So the colors, they mark the value of the hydrogen for energy transition. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And from what I understand, the electrolyzers have come a long way. One of the issues is that it is very energy intensive to actually make green hydrogen, but the technology has scaled and, and has come a long way in the last few years, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. But the EU, meanwhile, installed a lot of electricity capacity from renewables. So there's a lot of electricity available and uh, you do not always have the infrastructure to transport the electricity to the places where you need it. For instance, in Northern Europe, we have a lot of wind, but we do not necessarily have the industrial demand for electricity. So in here, hydrogen will be and is used as a buffer if you use the wind power you can't transport to be used in electrolysis, then you have the hydrogen and it's much easier to store the hydrogen on transported or in Northern Europe to use it as a fuel for ships, for example. Yeah. And I think that's one of the key kind of disconnects, at least here in the US, is people think about hydrogen and they think about, oh, it's a substitute for gasoline, it's for transportation. But if you think of it as storage for clean energy, the applications kind of become endless and its flexibility really becomes valued. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And this is why people see it as one of the enabler of energy transition. It's one of the tools for buffering energy, for energy storage, and also one of the tools to decarbonize hard to abate areas. For example, in industry, in the chemical industry, use hydrogen as a feedstock use hydrogen to decarbonize steel production, use hydrogen for transport. In transport, actually, it's a bit more complicated. In transport or in general, direct electrification, you just mentioned that producing hydrogen is very energy intense. So we have to make sure we use it in the most efficient way. And direct electrification, in most cases, is the more efficient way. 
but it's not possible in all areas. For example, if you would use direct electrification for a truck, you would need a large, large battery and you would lose a lot of your transport capacity and your range would be limited. But if you go for hydrogen using, for example, a fuel cell or synthetic fuels, all these issues would be solved and the truck in the end would run CO2-neutral. And yeah, I think that's one of the key applications that's been mentioned in the U.S. to start with hydrogen is long-haul trucking and really try to decarbonize there and and replace diesel fuel in long-haul trucking. But yeah, like you mentioned, as a storage application, I think it really becomes interesting because you mentioned, you know, there's an excess of wind, you can convert to hydrogen, and that hydrogen can be shipped all over the place to where it's needed. And in applications like steel, to run a blast furnace at that high heat with the renewable energy is really exciting. Yeah. And this is one of the pilot areas where the EU is starting to use the hydrogen because we have to solve two areas. We have to to build up large production capacities to have the hydrogen. Here, the renewable energies are the precondition. But after this, we also have to make sure to have applications for the hydrogen. And it will take a while to have... um, an infrastructure for hydrogen along the railways to make sure we can fill up all the trucks used. And therefore, we in Europe start with steel to decarbonize steel. Another area is that we said, okay, uh, let's use the hydrogen to decarbonize aviation, use hydrogen and power to X to produce sustainable fuels from it and then have um, one of the hardest to abate areas decarbonized. Yeah, I mean, that's exciting. So there are a couple of things I want to hit on. First, you mentioned renewables and having kind of the foundational renewable portfolio in place, but you're also an expert in energy markets. I mean, how has the introduction of hydrogen affected these energy markets? Has it driven more uptake of renewables and has it made renewables easier because there's another storage opportunity? Yes, that's right. It, It created a new push for renewables. And um, it set off new investment capacities also for renewables. For example, Denmark. Today, Denmark already has a share of 60% of wind energy in its own consumption. But having hydrogen in their mind, and for example, Germany is not far away. And Germany still has a large production industry and they will need a lot of hydrogen to decarbonize this industry or parts of the transport. So for Denmark, it's very interesting to build up huge capacities of renewable energies to use parts of those renewable energies to transfer it in uh, hydrogen production and then sell the hydrogen. So this is a really new business model across Europe. Similar things happen in Spain or in Portugal. Portugal has perfect conditions for wind farms and there's a cooperation between several European countries and Portugal. Portugal will build up a large hydrogen industry connected with renewable energies. For them, it's an industrial revolution. Today, Portugal does not have a lot of industry and this offers the possibility to establish industry. And in some areas, this is all also um, regarded as a tool for development. There are partnerships with Northern Africa, for instance, with Morocco. Morocco also has fantastic conditions to produce renewable energy. 
and hydrogen and then transport this back to Europe, the US or whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, it really does open up a lot of opportunities because when we talk about renewable energy, wind or solar, and you talk about transmission lines and trying to transport it or put it into batteries, there's always some loss there. And I'm assuming that there is some loss when you trans when you convert it from wind or solar energy to hydrogen, but being able to transport it as a liquid or a gas really opens things up. And like you said, can create whole industries in places where they didn't exist before. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So the other thing that you touched on that I kind of want to go back to are, are these infrastructure, because we've talked about actual hydrogen production itself, but that's not all that's necessary, right? There is a lot of infrastructure that needs to be created for this fuel to kind of work, right? Yes. You need the hydrogen plants itself. If you want them to be effective, they need to be really large. They really need to be close to where the electricity is produced. And you need to have um, a possibility to have them linked with some transportation infrastructure. This could be a pipeline, but a hydrogen pipeline is not that easy to build. You can use parts of existing pipelines, but there's a lot of research around it. One needs to be changed as hydrogen is not that easy to handle. But if you have hydrogen plants in the North Sea, you can use it as filling station for shipping. You can use it to have an energy storage for wind energy in the North Sea and then transport it here and there. And maybe interesting for you to know that in the North Sea, you had a lot of natural gas, but those natural gas fields, they are worn out today. So hydrogen in the North Sea for countries as Denmark, Great Britain, or the Netherlands, and even Norway, could replace some of this fossil industries they had before. And they had parts of the infrastructure needed. But as you say, a lot of things need to be changed on there too. Would that be driven by offshore wind in the North Sea? Yes, absolutely. There are very ambitious plans to double or triple production capacities of offshore wind. And this is a pan-European project. All European power systems are connected. So in the north of Europe, Norway, Great Britain, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany, they are connected via grid and electricity grid across the North Sea. And this gives more resilience to against blackouts. And of course, this also offers the possibility to move around the electricity. If you don't need the electricity in Great Britain, it goes to Germany or to Belgium, etc. And also having in mind the hydrogen issue, if you can't use it, you make hydrogen or you just plan with the hydrogen as a first step Parts of the capacities right now are, in fact, planned to only be used to produce hydrogen. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, because do you see, particularly with offshore wind development, do you see hydrogen cannibalizing the offshore wind that would have been used to power homes or businesses on the shore? No, actually not, because what is planned now is those wind parks are planned further north and further offshore. And it would be more difficult and more expensive to have a connection to the consumption centers in which are further south. And this is, you are used to different dimensions, but in Europe, one and a half thousand kilometers, that's a very, very long way. And building a grid 
across several European countries, you have different languages, different administrations, and this takes a lot of time and it's quite complicated. So it's easier to turn this into hydrogen and just use the hydrogen in place to fill up ships. Some of the biggest harbors in Europe are in the North Sea. It's London Harbor, it's Amsterdam and Rotterdam. They are the biggest harbors for connecting Europe to goods from Asia. So all the marine traffic will pass by and you could use a lot of this hydrogen for ships so it's not cannibalizing each other. Yeah, I mean, again, it just opens up so much possibilities when you think about hydrogen as a way to store renewable and transport renewable energy easily and then use it for different applications as opposed to just being application specific for transport or, or for steel or whatever. But it's so interesting. You mentioned that it could obviate the need to build more grids to connect more countries together. It's a different and better way to transport energy. Just really interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, one thing I want to touch on are the incentives and the regulatory environment that the EU is using. Are they different for infrastructure versus hydrogen production? How is it handling that aspect? Yeah, this is right now causing some conflicts. In some places, you have um, hydrogen against electricity infrastructure. As some of the grid operators, they say, oh, it's cheaper to have a hydrogen plant instead of extending our grid. But um, as we need to differentiate very clearly where do we need the electricity and where do we need the hydrogen and how much electricity do we need and how much hydrogen will we need. Then we come to a solution where the regulator, and this is in the end the task for the regulator, could say and can say, okay, this is the perfect solution. And on here we already did, let's say, 70% of our homework or actually the regulators did. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be something to be worked out in the future, that choice between infrastructure and production. And maybe it's not a choice, but how the regulators work that out and incentivize each properly. Earlier in the show, you mentioned a specific project in Denmark. I want to go back to that because that's actually right here with us and Danfoss, right? Yes, yeah, Danfoss is involved. And that's really one of the most exciting projects on hydrogen, on offshore wind power, on infrastructure in general. Denmark is building an artificial island in the North Sea, quite far in the north of the Danish mainland, 80 kilometers off the coast. And uh, they plan to build world largest offshore wind park with a final capacity is planned of 10 gigawatts. That's really a lot today. The world's largest offshore wind park is in Great Britain and it has 1.2 gigawatts, I think. And the total European offshore wind capacities are around 12 gigawatts, if I'm not taking wrong. So this almost would double the generation capacities. And as we discussed earlier in this show, part of this electricity capacity will be used directly to be transferred to hydrogen production and the island will be used as a hub for ships going to Asia, replacing uh, heavy diesel fuels and being decarbonized. And the island will be quite large. It will start in almost 20, in American English, I think it's soccer fields size. And it could grow up to the double size. 
and it's one of Europe's largest infrastructure project with around 30 billion euros or what's it then uh, 34 billion dollars investment needed. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And just the interplay between renewables and hydrogen and uh, different applications is really incredible. And it shows the investment that's needed, but also the scale that's needed to really make these things work. So a lot going in there. And I'll be really interested to see how it plays out for the EU and for Danfoss also. Yeah, the economy of scale is very important in here. And you need those large projects. It's not, what is it called, a gigantomaniac to have those large projects. It's just an economic need. Yeah, and I think that's one of the barriers that we see is that there aren't a lot of pilot projects out there. There aren't small projects. We really need to make large investments and try to get this to scale right away in order for the economics to work. Yeah. So I think what the EU is doing is really instructive, and I hope that at some point in the future, the U.S. market will get there also, and we'll see that type of investment. But as we kind of wrap up here, looking into the future, what do you see for hydrogen in the EU how does it fit into the renewable storage mix in, say, five years and 10 years? And is it part of the mainstream by then? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely is. It already became part of the scenarios. The energy world is a world which is highly regulated. So it's not, it's privatized, but it's not 100% free. So scenarios and regulation is very important. And the regulatory frame foresees a share of 25% of hydrogen of total of the EU's total energy consumption in uh, 2050. And on the way there, already in 2030, we plan with 6% of hydrogen on the final energy demand, which is quite a lot already. If you take into account, this is all the electricity consumption. This is the whole mobility sector, this is the building sector, this is the industry sector, this is everything. So 6% of everything is really a lot. And yeah, I think that's kind of one of the things to keep in mind here is that sometimes I think with some of these technologies, we have a winner-take-all attitude, but it's really not. And I think we're seeing that emerge in Europe and in the US too, is it really is a mix. And it's not batteries or hydrogen, it's not wind or solar, it's really a mix of everything and finding that right balance where we can decarbonize effectively. And I think that that's kind of what you're pointing towards in Europe. Yes, absolutely, John. This is absolutely right. And that's a very important takeaway. And this is forgotten sometimes in energy. There's no silver bullet. Yeah, it really is a mix and finding the right portfolio and the right balance for that particular region. So, And I do think that hydrogen has a place, obviously, in Europe, but also in the United States and North America in general. So with that, let's wrap up. Thank you, Marcus, so much for joining us. This was really instructive, showing us what is possible with the right incentives, the right regulatory framework in place. So we will look forward to see hydrogen's future in the U.S. based on what you told us today. That's it for this episode of the Envisioneering Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Marcus Lemp, for joining us. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. It really helps us. Again, my name is John Sheff. I'm the Director of Public and Industry Affairs for Danfoss. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.
This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website, computer, or playing device.